let us now go into our scripture passage this morning, which comes from Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through chapter 4, verse 4. I will be reading from the ESV. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line, and it's good to be back with you today. It was also really good last week to have our guest speaker, Michael O., preaching to us uh, and, and to have the time that he spent with us after the service. Kind of feel like Michael is one of our best kept secrets here at Renewal. Michael is the global executive director and CEO of the Lausanne Movement. It's an international movement that seeks to connect leaders around the globe for the purpose of spreading the gospel, advancing the gospel around the globe. He's also one of our congregants. Some of you may not know that. And he's one of our missionaries, someone who I value personally as a friend. I uh, always find uh, him challenging, insightful, compassionate. And so if you were unable to be with us last week, or if you were unable to get the message, the interaction time with him afterward, let me urge you, those were recorded. I think they would be well worth your time. If you're interested in the After Church Seminar, please contact the Missions Committee. There's a link that they can, uh, can help you with. You can contact them through missions at renewalmainline.org. That's missions, plural at renewalmainline.org, or go to the website and use the contact link, and we would be glad to connect you with the Missions Committee. We are picking back up our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of Jonah. We're going to finish the book up this week and next week, and then we'll move into Advent. But I want to underline these two weeks are really important for you and me as we live in this country. Chapter 4, which is what we're going to be studying, makes very clear that this is not an American book that the point of the book of Jonah is not to instill American values and visions of the good life in you by telling you an American success story. See, a typical American story would have everything in it that we've already seen from chapters one, two, and three, and it would end at chapter three. It would start by showing in chapter one how the protagonist messed up, how his character flaws, his misplaced values, got himself in trouble, and how those misplaced values and character flaws not only threatened himself, but threatened all the people around him as well. But then chapter two, he would come to this crisis moment and chapter three, he would emerge and do the right thing. 
And by doing the right thing, he would rally lots of people to him and to his perspective. They in turn would do the right thing and avert disaster. And then an American story would end. That's the kind of story that we tell each other in this country. We do it through books, we do it through social media, we do it through videos, we do it through seminars, do it through self-help seminars. We say to people, when you mess up, you have to back up, then you have to do the right thing, and when you do that, life will end well. And you know, if you want, you can go ahead and pray. It never hurts to have a little bit of religiosity in there. Go ahead and pray. God will make sure your life turns out well. That's an American story. Scripture does not teach an American story. Scripture does not end with chapter three, it goes on to chapter four. And in doing that, the book of Jonah stands outside the broader cultural values that you learn when you grow up in this country or when you come here and have to adopt them if you wanna have a piece of the good life. And because chapter four stands outside of an American tradition, we really don't know what to do with it in this country. I did a research project about 20 years ago. I studied Bible story books written for children. The vast majority of them that included Jonah left out chapter four. They just ignored it. Some cases they even rewrote it. We don't know what to do with chapter four. It does not fit into our cultural values. It does not fit into our way of thinking. Jonah has just overcome his moral failing chapter three. He's been wildly successful in ministry and he's angry exceedingly angry. It doesn't fit our cultural narrative. So it's gonna take a little bit of work this morning to understand what is going on here. Why end the book this way? And even more importantly, why does God think that ending the book this way is necessary for your spiritual health, for your growth, for your progress in the gospel? These are his words that reflect his heart to his people, words that he has preserved for thousands of years. He has his own narrative. And if you want to get on board with his narrative in chapter four, you're going to need to see three things this morning. First, you need to see God's purposes in the lives of his people. You need to see what he intends to happen by his involvement in their lives. You need to see his purposes. Second, you need to see the persistence of sin, the thing that gets in the way of God's purposes. And then third, you need to see God's patience with his people as he works with them to accomplish his purposes in their lives despite the persistence of sin. You're gonna have to understand his purposes in the life of his people, the persistence of sin that resists his purposes and his patience in working with his people. First, God's purposes in the life of his people. In chapter four, verse one, Jonah is responding to a situation that he does not like. His enemies are repenting, God is not destroying them and Jonah is angry, exceedingly angry. He is so angry he would rather die He's consumed by anger and hatred. But remember how he got here. God put him here. God was determined to give the Assyrians a chance to repent, but God was just as determined that Jonah was the one to give them that chance. From God's perspective, there's something absolutely essential about Jonah's participation. See, God could easily have raised up another prophet and sent that one over to Assyria, or he could have supernaturally written this warning in the sky. God didn't do either of those things. He chose Jonah and he insisted that Jonah be the one to take this message to them. Now, why is that? If you're gonna understand that, you have to recall the backstory that you're told in 2 Kings chapter 14. 
you learn there that Jonah was, an, was already an established prophet in Israel. He was a prophet during a time when the nation had been oppressed by surrounding nations. They had been chipping away at its territory. And God spoke to Israel through Jonah about restoring the borders of their nation back to the size, almost to the size of the nation in its heyday under Kings David and Solomon. It was a prophecy that Jonah gave, and it's a prophecy that came true in his lifetime. Jonah lived during a, time, a period of expansion for Israel, and he was at the center of making that expansion happen. It's a time when Israel's fortunes were picking up, but it was also a time where there was something evil lurking in the nation of Israel. Was it there already, or did it come in with their prosperity? We don't know, but what we do know is that along with that expansion came a poisonous nationalism and us-against-the-world mentality, and a mentality that said, if Assyria gains something, we will lose something. There was a poisonous nationalism, and there was a fierce racism, a racism that said that the Assyrians did not deserve to have good things like the Israelites deserved. And Jonah was right in the middle of it, and that's tragic. The blessing of God to Israel in restoring their fortunes did not lead Jonah to appreciate God's larger kingdom agenda for all of the world, for all of humanity. God's desire that Israel would be a blessing, not just to themselves, but to all the nations. The blessing of God did not lead Jonah to embrace that larger vision. Instead, Jonah was locked into a much smaller agenda, one that promoted his own tribe. And so he was willing to speak the words of God that agreed with his vision, that promoted his agenda, that gave him what he wanted, a larger, more powerful Israel, but he was not willing to speak words that would benefit those that he saw as threatening Israel, his people, his tribe, his group. His vision of God's kingdom was much too small. And it's highly doubtful that this was his issue alone, that no one else in Israel shared it. So that's the backstory, that's the context that within Israel, certainly within Jonah, there's rampant nationalism and racism of the kind that is standing in the way of God's kingdom advancing. God sees that and he decides to address it. Now, how does he decide to address it? Well, here's what he did not do. He did not give Jonah a special word to denounce Israel for their sins. He does that in other times and other places. He didn't do that here. He also doesn't give Jonah a personal word that confronts him, that calls him out, that convicts him of his own sin. Sometimes he does that in other places and other times, but not here. What does he do here? He puts Jonah into a situation that simultaneously exposes two things. It exposes his sin, and it exposes the immaturity of his faith to deal with that new situation. Take them one at a time. First, it exposes his sin. God crafts a situation where Jonah could not hide the animosity and the hatred that are lurking inside of him. See, as long as he stays at home in Israel, he can get away with racism and nationalism. It's not as obvious there that what was inside of him opposed God and opposed God's kingdom. It was not as obvious that what he valued fought against what God valued. And so God took him out of that place where he was comfortable and he put Jonah into a place where Jonah could no longer hide what was inside of him. God put him in a place that exposed the ugliness that was inside. 
Now make sure you understand this. Sending Jonah to Nineveh did not cause his hatred. It didn't make him hate the Ninevites or want to see the worst happen to them. Changing his geographical location, something external to himself, taking him from one place, putting him in another, going to Nineveh, that did not create sin. It created a situation that allowed his sin to come out, that exposed the ugliness of what was already there. It showed what was there but had not yet had a chance to express itself. It exposed his sin. That's the first thing that God does here. Secondly, however, God is also doing this crafting situation to expose Jonah's spiritual immaturity. We learn here in chapter 4, verse 2, that the whole reason Jonah fled from God's presence in chapter 1 is that he knew deep inside that God is gracious and merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he abounds in steadfast love, that he relents from disaster. Jonah knew all that back in chapter 1. That's what he says in chapter 4. He says, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? He's saying, Lord, back in Israel, I knew the gospel. I knew you were gracious. I knew that you don't give people what they deserve. I had faith back in chapter one, faith that was grounded in your character. I knew what you were like. He knew that, but he did not call on that faith to deal with this new situation that God was putting him into. He didn't cry out to this God of mercy and grace to help him deal with his hatred. He didn't press into God to find strength to obey God for something that ran against what Jonah wanted. Instead, Jonah ended up running away from God. Make sure you see this. He had faith back in chapter one. Faith that was strong enough for what God had called him to do earlier in Israel. But that faith was not big enough what God called him into next. It was big enough as long as he only saw a small piece of what God was doing, but when God showed him a larger piece of his kingdom, that earlier faith was no longer enough. His former experience of God, his spiritual maturity, his growth in grace, that wasn't up to this new challenge. And don't avoid this. This is hard. Don't avoid this. God intentionally put him in that new place. God put him in a place on purpose that would expose his sin and show him that there was immaturity in his spirituality. Now, some of you probably figure out where I'm going to go. So let me take a moment and just encourage you. Because God's plan works. Jonah does grow. It's not obvious here in chapter 4. In the middle of chapter 4, it doesn't look so good. Jonah is angry. He wants to die. If this is the way God is and the way that God's kingdom is, Jonah wants no part of this. He'd rather die than live in this kind of world. God tries to engage him, asks him a question in verse 4. We didn't read verse 5, but if you read that, you realize Jonah does not answer God's question. Turns his back on God and walks away from him. In the middle of chapter 4, God's plan of reaching his broken prophet does not seem to be real effective. But let me ask you a question. How do you know all this? How do you know any of it? How do you know what Jonah was thinking back in Israel when God told him to Nineveh? Those are his thoughts in his head. How do you know what he was thinking while he's in the fish talking to God? No one else was there. How do you know what he's doing now in chapter 4? The content of what he says to God and the content of what God says to him. Where does all this information come from? 
he's the only one around. No one else is listening in. It tells you something then. It tells you that Jonah had to talk about it. Jonah had to communicate it, had to write it down. Which tells you that at some point, Jonah got it. At some point, he understood what God was doing and he entered into it. He found grace to help him in time of need. At some point, he changed. At some point, he got it big enough that he had the humility to talk about his sin, to talk about his immaturity. He had the humility to unpack and write not only that God had confronted his racist nationalism, but even more importantly, how God confronted it. And he wrote to give you confidence that the way that God works with his people actually leads to change. What Jonah wrote became part of scripture. And now you see the beauty of what God was doing because in having this written in scripture that the Israelites read, God did address the larger societal issues in Israel. He challenged their small view of the kingdom. He called them to something bigger, but he did so by challenging and transforming one person who then went on to impact the world around him. That's what God does. He puts his people into places that expose their sin and exposes their weak spirituality, not to embarrass them, not to shame them. You go back through chapter four, God is not angry. You don't hear him condescending. He doesn't expose people to make them feel bad. He does it to help them grow, to say, to learn, so, so they learn to say what they're actually thinking about him, so that they actually start to wrestle with him, that they dig deeper into him, they lean on him so that they mature spiritually so that they eventually enter that much more into his kingdom plans and purposes, so that they can impact the lives of the people around them. And that means that you should expect him to do the same for you. You should expect him to reshape your world, to make it uncomfortable for you, so that it exposes things that you're holding onto that have nothing to do with the Lord, things that will get in the way of seeing his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And you should expect that you're gonna have to grow. And that's a hard sell for many of us because again, we're Americans. We fully expect that this world is supposed to be comfortable for us and so when it's not, we do two things. We work really, really hard to get it back to what it was and if that doesn't work, then we completely quit. We check out, we sit back, we wait for it to be what we want it to be. And I hear lots of people, as I talk with people right now, I hear lots of people saying those kinds of things. Things like, I can't wait until things get back to normal. I can't wait until the vaccine is here and the pandemic is over. I can't wait until we sort out the social injustice issues and things quiet down. I can't wait until the election is over and we go back to what life was like. I can't wait until things go back to normal. To hear our hearts as they're exposed? How what we really want is coming out of us as the world is uncomfortable for us? We want it back. We want the life back that we had. We want it back the way it used to be. And let me be frank with you. I'm not sure that it's going back. God has changed our world. He rules over everything in his universe for his purposes. If our world is different now, it's because he's allowed it, and he's allowed it because in some way it serves to advance his kingdom. I don't understand that. 
but he's allowed it and he's doing that on purpose. He's changed our world. And that change means that we, as his people, have to grow. We can't afford to live in denial. We can't afford to say, well, we'll just sit back and wait things out until life goes back to normal. That is not what God is doing in your life right now. He's changed your world so that you can see what's exposed, so that you can grow in your faith to handle this new world, so that you can lean into him more strongly, so that you can impact the lives of the people around you. The faith that you used to have, that was good enough to handle the world that was. You were comfortable then. Your faith worked well enough. That world has changed. And so your faith has to what? It has to grow to keep up. But if we're going to do that, and I'm including myself in that way because there's a large part of me that really would like to have that old world back. But if you and I are going to give ourselves to the purposes of God, we have to change our paradigm. We have to change the way that we approach life. We have to grow in this new, uncomfortable, changed world that God has given to us. Do you see how un-American this book is? How it lays out a very different way of thinking about life? Let me give you an illustration. I did something to my shoulder in my early 20s. I was throwing a ball and I, I felt that slight little tearing and, and I ignored it and I kept on going and ended up permanently injuring it. Most of the time it was fine over the years, but if I did any kind of overhand throwing motion, it ended up hurting. So what did I do? Well, for years, I just avoided doing things that would make it hurt. I shrunk the world down to a smaller size, a world where I was not as engaged, but a world that was more comfortable for me. Now, you physical therapists are going to laugh at me here. I didn't know that you could actually do anything about this, that you could rehab this kind of thing. Years and years later, my doctor gave me some small little weight exercises, and the difference was amazing. As I strengthened the muscles in and around the shoulder, I found I could do more than I thought I could. I could play longer with my sons. I could throw baseballs and footballs at the beach with them. I could impact their lives for good rather than retreating from them. What happened? My world did not get more comfortable. I got stronger in my world. My ability to handle the demands of my world grew instead of me demanding that my world go back to what it was. It's a paradigm shift for me. That's the way that you have to think about your faith. When God puts you in places that are overwhelming for you, places where you might be tempted to be angry or maybe where you already are angry, you have a choice. You can either pull away from them, try to quit. That's Jonah's goal. He says, it's better for me, Lord, to die than to live. God, if this is the way the world is now, I don't want any part of it. Just take me out. Or you can press into God and grow. Not so that God will give you the world that you've always wanted, but so that he reshapes you so that you can handle the world that is. And so that you enter into that world in a different way, a way that allows you to impact it with his goals in mind. That's how God changes people. That's how he changes the world. He changes you, and you in turn then impact others. Now sometimes that impact on others that you have, like Jonah's, is going to be on a really large scale. When God changes you, some of you may have the equivalent of affecting 120,000 people in an enemy city. 
And I suspect that every single one of you at this moment said, that's not me. Why did you say that? Jonah did not start out his life expecting that that was going to happen. God decided that that was going to happen through Jonah. There's no reason that God will not decide to have that happen through you. Or you might become a voice that gets written down, lasts for thousands of years. Some of you may have that size of impact. Most of the time, however, your impact's going to be smaller. You'll impact the people who are directly around you might not have the size, the, the volume of Jonah's impact, but if you take seriously what God is doing when he puts you in those hard places, if you embrace them, if you don't run from them, but you wrestle with him, you will affect other people. You'll end up impacting this world just as though God himself were there in, instead of you. This is how God changes the world. He does it first by changing you. But then you ask, well, why does he have to do it this way? Why, why don't we just simply, joyfully, optimistically, wholeheartedly embrace whatever he's doing? Why don't we just abandon ourselves to him and to his purposes? Why don't we do that? It's because something opposes what God is doing, and it's called sin. It's the persistence of sin. Jonah knows an awful lot about the grace of God. He knows, chapter 4, that grace is a fundamental part of God's character. He knows, chapter 2, that he does not deserve that grace, but that he's given it anyway. He knows, chapter 2, verse 8, that if he clings to worthless idols, like nationalism and racism, if he clings to them, he'll forfeit the grace that could be his. He knows all of that. And yet here he is in chapter 4, angry, exceedingly angry, happy to receive grace that he doesn't deserve, angry when certain other people get what he thinks they shouldn't get. Now, what does that tell you about sin? It tells you three things here. First, the problem of sin is not a knowledge problem. The problem is not that Jonah doesn't know enough. The problem is that knowledge is not strong enough to dislodge sin. It's also going to be a challenge to us in this country. We value education. We should. We live in God's world, and therefore we're going to spend our entire lives learning about it. We should value education. But there is a limit to what education can do. It can't dislodge sin, because while sin is expressed through the mind, that's not where sin starts. It starts in the heart. And education alone cannot change the heart. You cannot teach someone enough so they will stop sinning. This is a moral problem, not an ignorance problem. If you could teach your way to holiness, then you and I would just see our problems disappearing right and left, right? Our children's problems would disappear. Our spouse's problems would disappear. Our friends' problems would disappear. Our enemies' problems would disappear. But they don't because sin is not fundamentally a knowledge problem. Second, the problem of sin is that it does not go away. It's stubborn, even when you deal with it. And this is a surprise to people. It sneaks up on us. It surprises us that you can see sin, that you can deal with it at a certain level, and that you get ambushed by it again. Okay, keep, keep in mind here the sequence in this book. Chapter 1, Jonah runs from God because he doesn't want the Ninevites to receive grace that he doesn't think they deserve. Chapter 2, he receives grace that he doesn't deserve. So much grace that chapter 3, he now goes and obeys God. He does 
he obeys more in chapter three than he did in chapter one. He's wrestled to some extent with that hatred that was inside of him. And then chapter four, his anger explodes. And there it is again. Sin is incredibly persistent. You can't deal with it just once. Then just you know, breathe a sigh of relief and think, okay, thank goodness that's all done. I'm glad God's taken care of that. Instead, you have to be diligent. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying it to give you a realistic picture of what you're up against. If you've only been following the Lord for a little bit of time, this may be kind of new to you, but sin goes underground. It's unnoticeable at times. It festers there, however, and then it pokes back up again. I'm saying that because I want you to be ready for it when it does that. You need to develop a mentality so that when God puts you in a place that exposes sin in you again, you learn to say just very matter-of-factly, oh, of course. This should not be surprising to me, and, and it does not demoralize me. I am not walk going backwards in my faith now that I see a new layer of sin in me. What this actually means is that God is at work to show me more of what I need to deal with. It's always been here, so now let me deal. A number of years ago, I was badly mistreated by a group of people that I worked really hard to love and sacrifice for. I know I'm not unique. I know that if we sat down over coffee, you'd share your story and I could share my story. We all have these kinds of stories, which means that you understand that after you get over that shock of being hurt, that bitterness sets in and that you now have to wrestle with bitterness, that you have to push away that temptation to, to ruminate, to turn over and over and over in your mind all the bad things that they did so that you can roll around in self-pity. That you, have, you, you, you know that you have to pursue the Lord to remind you of how much he loves you, even if someone else doesn't. Of how he has good plans for you, how he doesn't let anything into your life that isn't necessary for your good. And then you have to start to talk to your friends and help them get on board with that so that they stop running other people down and talking badly about them. Felt like I was able to do that this time. Uh, in, uh, more quickly than I had at other times. And, and I was able to get to that point where I, where I could even start to think about, boy, what, what would really be good for them? And then out of the blue, I got a text. And the text said, hey, heads up, that group that hurt you, they're gonna ask you soon if you'd come over and help them. <laughs> and, and, and you know what happened, right? Suddenly, all at once, these feelings start to bubble up, the, the temptation to feel superior. Oh, now they want my help. Or, or the temptation to turn them down so that I can make a statement about how badly they hurt me. All those temptations, all those feelings. But there's also a picture that came bubbling up. A picture of me walking into that space and having to shake the hand of a particular person that I didn't want to see. And what happened in that moment, it was so good not to be surprised. Here's bitterness again not to be surprised at that reaction, to know that sin is persistent and to be able to say nuts. I, I, I thought we were done with this, but apparently not. So Lord, this is still here, it's still in me. Let's get back to work on it. God will put you in places that expose the persistence of sin because this side of heaven, it does not go away. You can overcome it, you can grow to be a better person, you're going to keep wrestling with it until you leave the planet. So first, you, <coughs> you learn here that the problem of sin is not a knowledge problem. Secondly, that it does not go away. And third, it will find some way to express itself. 
Remember what Jonah planned for the Ninevites back in chapter one. He knew that if he did not warn them, then God's judgment would wipe them out. He planned the deaths of 120,000 people. That's how many people lived in the city at that time. That's why Jesus is later gonna say in Matthew five that hatred and murder are linked. Hatred says, I can't stand you. I can't stand being around you. I don't wanna see you. I want you out of my life and murder finishes that off in the most complete way possible. Murder is one of the fruits that hangs on the tree of hatred. It's organically connected to hatred. It grows from that tree. And there are other fruits on that tree as well, other alternatives. One of them is, if I hate you, but I can't get rid of you, then maybe I can get rid of me. That's what Jonah's asking for in verse three. Now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. What is that? That's hate, right? That's it. It's still inside, still festering. But now instead of having an outward target, it has an inward target. This is why you have to deal with sin. It's always going to express itself in some way, either outwardly or inwardly, sometimes both. Either going to be in other destruction or self-destruction. And that's why Jesus says it's not enough to just love your neighbor and ignore your enemy. You have to learn how to love your enemy. It's not enough to stop hating. You have to have a fundamental shift inside that starts loving because anything short of love means that you're harboring sin inside. And when you harbor sin inside, it will find a way to express itself in some way. So if you ignore the hatred that you might have for the people that you live with or the people that you work with or the people on the other side of the political spectrum, you can be certain that that hatred will express itself. You'll find yourself giving into temptations to avoid people, to cut off contact with them, to not talk with them, at least for a period of time, to quietly gloat when they get tripped up. Ignore that hatred and it will express itself, but you need to be careful because it won't simply express itself externally, it will impact you as well. You in that process will become somebody that you don't want to be around. You'll become withdrawn from other people. You'll become bitter from other, uh, as you turn over thoughts of what you don't like about those other people. You'll become mean-spirited. You'll be an expert at finding fault with others. If you treat others the way that they deserve, rather than the way that God has treated you, you're gonna become a small-souled person, not a large-souled person. You'll be friendless, not friendly. Ignore dealing with the issue that God is exposing in your life. It will stay with you, it will fester, and it will express itself. That's a really dismal picture. You need to see that. So what gives us hope then? If God's purpose is to change us so that we're like him, but our sin keeps resisting him, what hope do we have of dealing with this? And our hope is that God is patient. Jonah's right about everything that he says of God, verse two, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's most of a direct quote from something that God said about himself after he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He took them through the wilderness, he provided for them, he gave them his laws so that they would understand him and understand how to live with him. And in return, almost immediately, they turned away from him. Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God and down below, the Israelites were sacrificing to idols. 
And instead of destroying the Israelites, God revealed even more of himself at that time. He let Moses see some of his glory in Exodus chapter 34, and he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, the exact same stuff that Jonah says of him later. And that becomes the foundational way that the Israelites knew God. It's something that you can find quoted, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. That's our hope, that God's goodness is the foundation of our relationship with him, that his goodness is even more persistent than our sin, that for every time our sin is exposed, he remains compassionate and gracious, that he remains slow to anger, that he remains abounding in love and faithfulness. And if you think about it carefully, you realize that's exactly what Jonah is experiencing from him in chapter four. God is compassionate to Jonah, soft toward him, not hard, slow to anger. He asks a question, engages Jonah, tries to draw him out, not frustrated, keeps loving Jonah, talks with Jonah, doesn't blow him off or ignore him. He relents from disaster. Jonah now deserves God's judgment again. And again, God doesn't give him what he deserves. Why? Because God is gracious. And he gives Jonah a fresh experience of that grace. That's who God is with his people. He will expose your sin, but he will not abandon you in it. He won't leave you in it to deal with it alone. But that actually creates a problem for God. Because there's more to what God said in Exodus that needs to be in your mind as well. See, this is how scripture works. When it gives you a partial quote, it means that for you to bring the rest of that quote in with it as well. And so you go back into Exodus and, and you read the rest of the quote. The quote starts, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, all that Jonah's already said. Here's the rest. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Think about that, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Forgiving, yet punishing. How do you bring those two together? I mean, either one makes sense, right? You could forgive or someone, or you could punish them, but you can't forgive and punish. Those things move in opposite directions. That's the struggle of the Old Testament. God's gracious compassion wants to forgive because he wants you to be with him but his righteous justice must punish sin. If he does not forgive you, he can't have you. You'll be forever outside of his world. But if he doesn't punish sin, then that world will not be worth living in. See, if he doesn't punish sin, if he doesn't right wrongs, if he, injustice is never addressed and overturned so that justice triumphs, if the guilty go free, if they don't pay, then who does? It's gotta be the ones who are hurt then, right? The victims of injustice then are gonna be the ones who pay the cost for all eternity if God does not punish sin because they had something done to them or taken from them that they now have to bear with all eternity if God does not punish sin. A world in which justice never overturns injustice is a world that you don't wanna live in and worse, if God allows an unjust world to exist, then he's not a just God. He's not a God worth living with. Do you see the conundrum here? 
If God does not forgive you, you cannot be his friend. If he does not punish sin, he's not a friend worth having. So how can he forgive Israel's sin at Mount Sinai and punish it? How can he be patient with them? They can't make up for what they've done by sinning against him. He's infinite. They've sinned against an infinite being, making their sin infinite. They can't absorb that kind of punishment. How can he forgive Jonah's persistent sin and punish it? Each persistent expression of Jonah's sin comes with infinite punishment. How can God be patient with him? And those are not academic questions because what we really want to know is how can he be patient with us? How can you know that he's patient with you and that he'll keep being patient with you? It's because God chooses not to be gracious to himself. To bring together forgiveness and punishment, justice and mercy, God has to refuse to be compassionate to himself. He has to absorb your infinite punishment. He's the only infinite one around. To be slow to anger with you, he has to pour out his wrath and his anger on himself. To abound in steadfast love to you, to keep his arms open to you, he has to turn his back on himself. To relent from bringing disaster on you, the judgment that you deserve, he can't spare himself. He has to bring disaster on himself. That's what's happening at the cross. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin perfect to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus should only have known the love and embrace of the Father. Instead, the Father put your sin on his Son, and then he judged it. He poured out his anger until there was no more wrath to pour out. Why is God patient with you? Because literally, there's no reason not to be. There's nothing in the way of his patience. He took care of that because you never could. And you will no more understand the depths of God's love by looking at it once than you'll understand the depths of your need by dealing with your sin once. This is something you have to look at over and over and over and over again. Something you have to meditate on. Something that, that until you spend enough time with it that, 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 that penetrates you and starts to go below the surface of yourself. Uh, you have to meditate on it until you know that God's grace and his mercy are for you. Until you know that he is patient, slow to anger with you. That he abounds in steadfast, wholehearted, passionate love for you. That he already has relented from disaster. There's no more anger inside of him against you. Get that inside of you, and it will change you, and it will be more persistent than your sin, and you will enter into his purposes, and you will, will impact this world for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are those who come only with debt in our hands. You are the one who comes and takes that debt from us. And you place in our hands all the wealth and the riches that you have in your Father. Thank you that we are in you and you are in us. Lord, give us your courage to look fearlessly at the things that you're exposing in our lives. Give us your confidence 
that you will not leave us until you work all of those things out and then there'll be no reason to leave us. Lord, let us enter into this experience of who you are a little more deeply today than we did before. In Jesus' name, amen.